Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. Hello to anyone who is listening to this on the Temple Beth Am podcast. We are on chapter uh, six of the book of Exodus in Parshat Shmot, and we're... Um, We're, we just finished the Rashi's on verse 20, okay? How much did, that, how much did you miss then, uh, Diane and Larry? How many verses did you miss in the, in the many months that you were away? Ten. Ten verses? Wow, we were well, going... We, we, are verse we just finished verse 20. Verse 20. Yeah, we did. We, we spoke about the difference between... We looked at um, Uncleus's, uh translation and said that it's... Uh, the word doda there is being used slightly differently than it is in the chapters of Parshat Achremot, where uh, we talk about the, um, the prohibited sexual relations and the word is used slightly differently there. You're welcome. So let me, um, oops, someone else coming in. Um, oops. Chapter 20, I mean, verse 21 is what I have before. So let me read verse 20. We always do that to give us some momentum and then we'll go forward. So verse 20 of chapter six, Vaikach Amram, at Yocheved Dorato Lolisha, that Amram took, and we have said before that took is a technical term here. It's not to, it's not to capture. It means to take as a wife. Uh, at Yocheved, who was, according to Rashi and Uncleus, his aunt. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, the 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 phraseology extends to modern English, um, and uh, Lolisha to him as a wife. Vatelelo, and she birthed to him at Aharon. That lo is, is always interesting. We could we could spend a semester on on how ancient civilization understood her giving birth for him, right? Like like it's really siring. It's siring a child, right? It's it's the same way, you, if you may, you know, you talk about uh, in in thoroughbred, right? That the that this broodmare sired for, you know, this this line. This number of children, because it's 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 really significant genealogically from the Torah's perspective that it's Amram's Amram's child, not the Yochevet's child. At Haron, whom he gave birth to Haron, and the at Moshe and Moses, Ushnei uh, Chayei Amram, and the years of the life of Amram. Noted, we noticed that Miriam is um, not there. Um, we also noticed that um, we don't need the second uh, et in that sentence, but it's there. The years of the the days of the the years of the life of Amram were 137 years. Okay, and that's where we ended. Um, we already spoken about the possibility as to why it's significant that we know how many years Amram lived. Okay, yes. Let's get a uh, microphone. You're talking. Hi, Tova. Yes. Yeah, so we talked about the fact that. Um, though that relationship apparently is is explicitly prohibited in Parshat Acharimot, there are two possible resolutions, right? One cleaner than the other. One is that that the word doda is being used differently here than it's used in that in that uh, verse. Second is we both want to and don't want to obligate the 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 early pre-revelation ancestors to the notion of having lived according to Torah law, right? So we both graph onto them that they were from Jews 
who observed all the Talmud anachronistically. And we say, like when Abraham and Sarah served, you know, treif to the angels who came, well, Torah hadn't been given yet, so there's no obligation, right? So there's an internal um, logical resolution saying that that which will be prohibited was not yet prohibited. And others would say, no, ein mukdamu charbo Torah. Of course, Yaakov wartsitzis, right? And of course, uh, Amram is responsible for those laws, but doda means something different here than it meant there. Yeah, Alan and then Barry. How can there be justification for Yaakov marrying sisters in that sense, which is later prohibited? How does how do how does an orthodox or a, a very traditionalist view justify that if they're saying well they're not if they want to claim by the Torah? How can you rectify that contradiction? Because you can choose from, and you and and I say with a twinkle in my eye, you choose whichever one is most convenient. If I want to choose the. To suggest that those who lived in the time of Genesis were obligated to the laws of, of Ayekra, I do that. And when that doesn't work, I say it's pre revelation, easy. Right? I mean, and, and it's sort of as simple as that, right? Because, you know, in some ways the rabbis are almost self consciously fantastical when they imagine <laughs> Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses observing Jewish law. Like, it, you almost sense that even they don't believe it, but they like us, you know hanging on them future observances. And so if you if you isolated, you know, Rebbe Yehuda in a room and forced him, do you really think that Yitzchak was davening Mincha? He would say, come on, of course not, right? But I, but I love the idea that when I daven Mincha, I'm associated with Yitzchak, right? I, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing here. So I, I think it's more likely that they would say, we, we tried to link as many future observances to them, because it feels good, but we don't get, we're not scandalized when they did something that eventually for us was prohibited. Yeah. Barry and then Rosemary. Well, just so that we had uh, mentioned also in terms of like age, uh, the aunt is not really like an older woman. Uh, she probably the, the youngest sister of uh, his parents' generation. So uh, they, they would have been like similar ages. Yeah. Certainly could be that way, right? There are gen generations that go like that. Rosemary. <clears throat> I'm just imagining that they are still closer to Egypt than Judaism. So in Egypt, it was very common to marry the sisters and brothers. So they still have that with them. Right. It's interesting you mentioned that, Rosemary, because one of the, again, Talmudic Midrashim on the generation that stayed in Egypt is that they maintained some of the burgeoning Jewish, Israelite, Hebraic traditions that that were created in the time of Genesis, but not all. And the ones that they maintained the most was that they kept Jewish names and they kept Tairat Mishpacha, right? So no matter who they married, they made sure they went to the mikvah, right? So the, the rabbis want, in creating that midrash, they're actually trying to tell you what's most significant about perpetuating Jewish identity. Not really, I think, trying to have us imagine the actual realia of of the slaves finding a mikvah to go to, but they don't mention that they maintained all of the laws regarding who marries whom, and they don't mention that they maintained all of the kashrut laws. They may have eaten treif, but they found a mikvah. Uh, Rick's hand is raised. Go ahead, Rick. Um, hi, can you hear me? I should lower my hand. Can I do a trope thing? Yeah. Um, so... The beginning of the phrase, verse 20, is where we are, right? Vayikach Amram, you've got the Kadma Vyazla there. It's dramatic. It shows importance to the words. 
you have the same Kadmav Yazla, verse 23, Vayikach Aharon. You got the same Kadmav Yazla, verse 25, Ve'elazar ben Aharon. So you could drash that the most important element of this time frame, the most important part of the episode, is when these men are taking their women and, and setting up their families. And, and um, I just like that. It, it, it's like the heading of each little section is that, and it's equal to B'nai Reuven, which was in verse 14, the last Kadmav Yazla, when he's the head of the, of the family, the, the most important supposedly son, Reuven and his kids. Okay, well then Amram and uh, Aharon and Elazar, they, they do important things too. The next two of those are Hotziu, in verse 26, it's not a Kadmavi Azla, it's an Azlagerus, but it's still. And then the next one after that is the same thing. Where did it go? Um, Hotse, the next Kadmavi Azla is in verse four of the next chapter. Hotseti at Sivotai, my hosts. So these are the hosts that are being taken out. And um, the important part was when they got married and had kids. So there you go. I can't hear you. You heard me, right? Okay. I can't hear you. No, the other one. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yes. So thanks for letting me. Your video went down, though, on the big screen. We, we no longer hear you. Okay. I can hear you now. Can you hear me? Can't hear you. I can't hear Adam. Now we're good. Okay. Uh, right. Almost a Verizon commercial. Uh, when I said, like everyone chuckled here, is isn't your book going to be great? Right. When you finally put this all together, every time you give one of these um, semi spontaneous commentaries, it does remind me of, of Buber's notion. Um, a light word. A light word. So, yes. It's not a light word. It's a, it's a light trope. Light trope or light motif, right? Yes. Thank you. I say this with respect. Is there anything to what you say? Who knows? But it's lovely, right? And and the po and the possibilities are lovely. And I'm I'm thinking of I don't remember if it's a midrash or I think it's in the Zohar. Uh, I taught this one year on Shavuot that yeah. talked about it's somehow a play on the word chariza, which in modern Hebrew can mean rhyme, but also means stringing together. And it imagines that what would happen um, on a leil tikkun Shavuot would be the rabbi sitting in a room and and doing chari, excuse me, chariza from one verse to the other, basically saying that a good Leil Tikkun Shavuot should have no um, agenda, should have no classes that you go to or sessions. You should just throw people in the room and have them look at the verses and see what emerges, like real organic production of meaning. And then imagine the rabbi staying up all night and saying, look, I, I never associated this verse here with that verse over there. And isn't that wonderful? Isn't that rich? Right? That's what you're doing musically. And um, it, it, it enhances so much our conversation. So thank you, Rick. Thank uh, you. Larry. First, I'll just say it's really good to see Rick give some credit to the uh, Kadmav Azla. But, uh, it's Larry's favorite. Yeah, my favorite. <laughs> uh, we talked about this verse last time. Did you discuss Chizkuni? I don't think we did. So, uh, but since you're going to, let me pull them up. Uh, start, start, and I'll pull them up. 
Well, Chizkuni's got this really interesting read. Uh, on which verse? On, on, 20, on 20, on why it is that this, um, um, this, this particular marriage, which, was, which should have been prohibited or in the future would be prohibited, is emphasized here. And he, he thinks that, you, you'll read it in a second, he thinks that in fact, it's important for leaders to have some flaw, either personal or in their background. You so, want to read it? So it's on the, is this the one you're referring to? Yes. Ma shehizkim ha-kadosh baruchu, sheyitzei adam gadol k'mosheh, milikuchim shatid lihizahir aleihem. How could God possibly have agreed, that's how I read the tone here, that a man as big as Moshe, as significant Moshe, would emerge, yetzei, milikuchim, from takings, that's that word lakach, right, from wife takings, from relationships, she'atid, in the future, Elon, as you said, we're going to be commanded against them, lahazir aleihem. Lefisha'ein ma'amidim parnas al hatzibor, this is going to make this is about to make me feel very good about myself. That you never place someone responsible on the congregation, unless kupa shall shall unless there is some how's it how do you translate it? some some like collection of yuckiness. A sheretz is a uh, is a is a prohibited um, you know bug are hanging off him, but savaro on his neck, pain yitka al hatzibor, lest he or she become too proud of himself or the congregation, as we saw with David, right? That's why I'm imperfect, folks. I'm imperfect for your sake. I screw up and mess up so that I can be more, you know, accessible to all of you, right? It's, a, it's actually a really wonderful, um, it's a really wonderful uh, sermonette here, right? So it's important that we know that Moshe came from what will eventually be considered questionable lineage, because that way he's not, he, he, he's not God. He's a flawed human. So it's, it's a variant on something that we've all learned and heard since we were really young, which is the great thing about the Jewish Bible stories are our characters are human and they all have flaws, whether they're personal flaws or flaws in their lineage, unlike other stories which were, were their great heroes are, are, are perfect. Yeah, that's great. Thank you, Hiskuni. I wonder if Chizkuni was, you know, who was the leader of his generation, or was he talking about himself? Was he trying to, just, you know, uh, justify, you know, things that his grandparents said they should have done? Wonderful. Thank you for that, Larry. Okay, uh, moving forward, verse twenty-one. Uh, Tova, you want to read? You got a couple of verses until you got a Rashi on twenty-three. Dan, can you give Tova the? Uh... Okay. Uh, Zoomers, how significant is it for you to see who's reading around the table? I know what she looks like. Okay. Because sometimes when Joel is here in person, he like he logs into the Zoom and then just swivels his camera around. Is that very helpful? Not at all helpful? Take it or leave it? I just need either the sound. Or, either or, as long as we know who they are anyways. Okay, Joel, how quickly can you get here? <laughs> Okay, go ahead, Tova. Uvnei Yitzchak Korak va'nefeg v'zikri. Not Yitzchak here, Yitz. What did I read? Yitzchar, oh, excuse me, Yitzchar. Yeah. Korak va'nefeg 
basically. Okay. It's hard. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard. Okay. okay. Um, let's see. Uh, and the sons of Yitzhar were Korak, Nefeg, and Zikri. <laughs> In these small gene genealogies, I always like thinking about, is it random or not random, which of these names perpetuated, which did not, right? right. I know Yitzhars. I have never met a Nefeg in my life, right? So I don't know why that is. Fair point. Uh, but we know nothing negative about Nefeg, right? Um, so... Yeah, he's yeah, so a nebuch. Nebuch, he's a nebuch. Uh, just so we understand where this is coming from, we had gotten a little interlude about the children of Amram. If you go back to verse 18, just so you see where we are in the genealogy, we are discussing the grandsons of Levi that came from Kahat, right? So uh, in verse 18, Uvne Kahat, the children of Kahat, Kahat was one of the children of Levi, were Amram, and then we spent another verse Two verses. No, no, another verse in verse 20, you know, telling us the offspring of Amram. And the next one was Yitzhar. So now we're filling that out. We're filling out the grandchildren of Levi. And there were three of them. Korach, we've heard of him, right? Automatically, you see something odd and problematic that if Korach was born to Levi, but Korach <laughs> is still alive and a rather young, virilish man on the Exodus, right? After they're already in the desert, right? Uh, it, it makes it hard to reconcile all of the of the years here, unless it's a different Korah, right? And then these two guys, Nefeg Bezichri, right? Rashi is understandably quiet in the verse. There's nothing particularly interesting, unless you know he could have gone a deep dive into this Korah connecting into other Korahs. But right now, right now he's quiet. Anyone else want to say or ask anything on this verse? Okay, twenty-two. Am I continuing? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Uvne Uziel, Mishael, Vel Safan, Vizitri. Okay. And what does that mean? Uh, and the sons of Uziel were Mishael, El, El Safan, and Vizitri. All right. So we have three more <laughs> grandchildren, uh, only one of which is a name that I've ever heard of in modern uh, Jewish life. I've met several Mishaels and never met an El Safan and a Sitri. If you compare verse 22 with verse 18, Anything strike you as odd? Um, where's Uziel? Well, this is... I mean, sorry, where's Hebron's kids? Right. So we heard that Kahat had four kids. Amram, Yitzhar, Hebron, and Uziel. Right. We've learned about Amram's offspring, Yitzhar's offspring, and Uziel's. Hebron's not. Right, so so many possibilities. Did he not? Did he not have kids? What did he just kind of drop away from the family? You know, may God not strike strike me. Scribal error. Was there a verse about Hebron that just disappeared? Right, we don't know. But Zeomer Darshani. It's odd that in a list that's being like micro comprehensive, it's not comprehensive about all of the grandchildren of the children of Israel because we're only trying to get us to Moshe and Aaron, as we saw a couple of weeks ago. But micro-comprehensive, every one of these genealogies are filled out. Hebron's line is not mentioned. I forgot to check whether, when this comes around again in Divrei Hayamim, the book of Chronicles, that, that kind of goes through all the names of, of these people, if Hebron's offspring are mentioned, that would be an interesting thing to contrast. Okay? Uh, Rashi's quiet on the verse. Um, uh, a little bit odd argument from silence why he doesn't mention, you know, the fact that Hebron's children are omitted, but um, 
Rashi doesn't say everything we think he might say. Moving forward, look at us. We are racing through. A question, sorry. Yeah, please. The Korach, this Korach isn't the Korach of the rebellion, or it is? I mean, the, it probably is, but it creates a math problem. Remember last week, we talked about the several different ways of figuring the math of how many years they actually spent there. And also, we're still living in an era where people live really, 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 really long lives, right? And Korach is indeed, if you, if you jump ahead to when Korach is introduced, internal to the Torah, it actually does think of this as being in the Korach. Okay, Vaikach Korach, Ben Yitzhar, that works out, Ben Kahat, Ben Levi, right? So Korach does indeed look like the great-grandchild of Levi, the grandfather, of, the grandson of, Kor, of Kahat. But if Levi is the actual son of Jacob, who's dead by now, because all of the children of Israel are dead by this time, the fact that his, um, that his great-grandchild is alive and not aged when the Israelites leave Egypt, um, oh, it's challenging. Okay. Again, motion also hanging out in this generation. So what I, it, there's, there's, there's no one saying that he's not that. I'm just saying it throws a challenge into imagining how many years they actually were in Egypt. Uh, Larry? Sorry, I, I should have been bringing all that onto the screen. I keep forgetting that if I, I have to share screen. So those of you who, who are on Zoom, I, you didn't see the Chizkuni I was reading before. I apologize for that. So Datskenim, who I think you looked at in the past or told us who it was, I don't know who it is, uh -huh. has an answer to the question as to why we don't hear from some, including uh, Hebron and not from others. On what, per, on what verse? It's on verse 20. All right, let me pull uh, that. 21, sorry, 21. 21. Well, let, me, let me share screen so everyone on the Zoom can see it. Okay. That's Kenim. Okay. It's not one person. That's what it's a, it's, it's almost like it's, it's a, almost a version of Tosafot. Right? Uh -huh. Tosafot are a collection of, of, of uh, mostly uh, Ashkenazi, French and German rabbis who are all collaborating somehow, un, not even all knowingly on commentaries in the Talmud. Dats Kenim is a collaboration or a collection of commentaries. Also, I think it's from the same, maybe 12th and 13th century Ashkenaz. Okay, go ahead. What strikes you about it? Well, he, he, it, um, they, or this particular commenta uh, commentary, explains why it is that some are, are mentioned and some aren't. It actually sort of inverts it by saying, only those descendants who had some imp future importance, we read about them later on, are, are included. So I was, I was looking at the English, it says that, um, but it asked the question, why did the Torah list the sons of Amran and the sons of Yitzhar, as well as the sons of Uziel, who were great grandchildren of Kahat, while not listing the descendants of either Gershon, Merari, or the list the descendants of Hebron, who were related to in a similar degree. Right, just so to, to clarify that, so, so Kahat, who is a direct descend, is a son of Levi, gets a full genealogy, but not Kahat's brothers, Gershon Mari, and Kahat's sons get full um, genealogies, except for Hebron. So in two different generations, there's a distinction made as to who gets, who does not get a genealogy here, yeah? So he says, we may have to answer the descendants of Amran who included Moses and Aaron were important, and similarly the descendants of Yitzhor, who included 
Korach were important, and Uziel was important as his sons, Mishael and Elitzafan, brought Nadav and Avihu to burial, which I didn't remember. Hmm. I don't think you mentioned. And so, uh, so that his sons are mentioned here also. So the implication seems to be if you can find some reference in the future to, to any of these descendants, then maybe their, their ancestors get a full treatment. Otherwise, no. Right. It's like it's, 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 you're following the train to every terminus that has a future, um, future relevance to the story, right. but no other, no other tracks. Interesting. Um, so it's not so this whole mini genealogy is to get to motion Aaron, but while we're dealing with motion motion Aaron we're also gonna you know play out the tributaries until we get to the poor person who you will eventually need to know it's like almost like a what's that thing a MacGuffin in a movie right like it's like a dropping something and you'll you'll eventually realize why it's been dropped Joanna. This commentary very much flows from what we, and I think you were kind of hinting at it now, what we discussed at, when we started this genealogy, which is we don't really get to all the sons of Jacob. We get to Moshe and then we stop talking about the rest, right? So it's all about who's going to be the most important to our story will be Moshe and Aaron, but this entire genealogy is all about who's going to have a role to play, if not now, at some point. Yeah, yeah. Right, very good. So, if you could, so, so those two commentaries together, those two comments together are very helpful in understanding what this is doing here as a little insertion before we go back to the narrative. And we were in the middle of a very dramatic narrative, right? This is the beginning of, of, of the Exodus story. And we're, it's taking us a while to get through it because we go slow. But even if you're just laning it, you're, you're, you're in a very important moment. All of a sudden, let me list you some names of people, right? Rosemary? Um. Um, for the name of Korah, I just give the example of our, my husband's family. It's a um, tradition in their uh, family that all the firstborns will have the name of the father of the uh, husband. The daughter, the first girl will be the like my mother-in-law. And then if you have like four children, it will be the second one boy will be my father and the second girl will be my mother. So this is tradition, like in my husband's family, they are like eight children, all the firstborns, um, the sons, they are called Reuben or Reuben. Hmm. That's Isaac's uh, father. So this is tradition that goes, and when it finishes the four, that husband and wife have their parent children names, then it goes to uncles or an uncle who has died. So this has been always like this. I mean, if you're sitting around, there are like 10 ribbons over there, wow. 10 other things. So maybe this is what Korah had, that even if the father and mother are alive, because like in my family, they were saying, your mom is alive, how come your daughter has her name? Hmm. But maybe they had that tradition in that time that they were passing the name to next generation. Right, uh, and certainly that's the case in the Hasidic community as well, that um, depending on what sect you're from, the firstborn male is usually named after the name of the great Rebbe, right? So I, as you know, I spent nine years living near Kirash Joel and nearly every firstborn son of every Satmar family is named Yoeli for Rabbi Yoel Teitelbaum, not for their own grandparent, but for the, the grandparent of them all, right? Of, of, the, of the sect. Uh, Sue, Mike, microphone. Just to add to Rosemary's story, it, similarly, and I wonder if this is um, kind of a Persian family. No, no your husband is not Persian. Lebanese. 
that what Lebanese Syrian Lebanese Syrian it's a, you know close because as the very similar thing is in my family which of course I interpret as rather comical because it's it's another huge family a million siblings and like everyone is named Shmulek and so it's you, you mean know Ofer's family yeah so it's a uh uh you know they're everywhere just like you have Rubens everywhere which is kind of funny everybody is <laughs> but no nefegs no Nefex, not a one. And had there been one, then there would have been many. So maybe there's a good thing that no one got named Nefex. Okay. Um, we're on verse 20. Did we read verse 23? No. Let's read verse 23. Um, you're still up, Tova. Baikaka Haron et Elisheva bat Aminadav, Achot Nakshon lo, Luisha, Batelid lo, et Nadav, Viet Avihu. Viet Elazar, Viet Itamar. Okay. And uh, Aaron uh, took Elisheva, the daughter of Aminadav, the sister of Nachshon, to him as a wife, and she bore him Nadav, Avihu, Et Elazar, and Itamar. Okay. So just to remind us where we are, um, had, in verse 20, we had learned of Amram's descendants, and they were Aaron and Moshe. Um, Miriam's not mentioned. We finished off Amram's siblings, and now we're going to Amram's children's story. And the first one, by age order, is Aaron. And we learn that he took as a wife Elisheva, that him exists, the daughter of Aminadav, um, the sister of Nachshon, to him as a wife. And she gave birth to him, Nadav and Avihu. We know why they're important to remember. And Elazar and Itamar, them too, because they replaced Nadav and Avihu. Okay, looking at the verse itself. Uh, particularly as you think about what we've been gathering from the genealogy so far, what's been present and what's been absent. Anything jump out at you? Yes, Elon, microphone. I think we need nine microphones around this table. Oh, sorry. Uh, this is the first time that I've seen that they reference somebody's sister. It's like, it's glaring, right? So. It's one thing to know that who Elisheva's father was, that's, you know, the patronage of someone is someone's comment. But to know that Elisheva was a sister of Nachshon, particularly since we don't yet know that Nachshon is someone worth knowing. And by the way, remember that, that when we think of Nachshon as someone worth knowing, we think of him as worth being, as, as worth knowing more because of Midrash than Pshat, right? The, the Midrash of Nachshon being going, going into the water and being a represent, you know, a, you know an example uh, showing courage to which God responded by splitting the Red Sea. It's a lovely midrash. It's a classic midrash. You know, the Nachshon as an image is used all the time. Nachshon in the Torah is just, Nachshon, is just Nachshon bin Aminadav, but he's still known later, right? But why is it significant that we know that Aaron's wife is Nachshon's sister, right? That Nachshon is Aaron's brother-in-law, okay? Why is it important to know on a pshat level, not on a midrashic level? That's a good question. Let's not answer it yet, but let's just hang it out as a really good question. Anything else on the verse that jumps out at you as a why this or why why is this here or why is this not here? Diane? So there are so few women mentioned in Torah. Um, and it's it's interesting here that we have wives' names mentioned, but not daughters. Yeah, we have we sort of it's almost like we have wives' names as the producer of the offspring. We all we care about them is as the as you know 
their wombs, right? They, they, they provided wombs to these men that produced these male children. And even though Miriam will become significant in the story, has been significant and will be significant again, she's not mentioned. But the wives are mentioned as producers, right? They really are. Sue, hand up, no? Yes, yes, there are fewer women mentioned in the Torah than there are than there are men, but they're not missing entirely. I mean, we have women in the Torah from the get-go all the way through, and they play an incredibly important role. So I, I, I can't, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater with that one. It's, it's, they're there. Right. They're there. Right. They're there. Uh, Rick and then Rebecca. Um, along those lines, <clears throat> we do have Yocheved, we have Elisheva, but when we get to verse 25, we don't have um, Elazar's wife's name. We just know that she's from the daughters of Putiel. So somehow we lost her name for whatever that's worth. Say that one more time. We have the name Yocheved in 20. We have Elisheva in 23. But when we get to 25, we don't have the name of Elazar's wife here. It might be in Chronicles. It just says, La Kaklo Mi Benot Putiel. Right. So, well, the that, that phrasing of Mi Benot Putiel, we'll either get to it this week or next week, raises a lot of questions as to both what does it mean and why is the actual name not there, right? We don't, we don't, if in a section where we seem to be meeting some of the wives, why do we not know the name of this particular wife? So good. Baruch Shekivanta Rashi is going to be interested in the same thing. Uh, Rebecca? I had noticed that uh, whenever there were multiple names, somebody had more than one son, it always had a the and in front of the, the boy's name, but with Nadav and Abihu, and then Elazar and Itamar, Elazar doesn't have a the. So it, it purposely groups together Nadav and Abihu, Elazar and Itamar, rather than Elazar standing by himself, it has those two groupings so that those sons are um, are associated with each other and their, their, their future. Very good, right? All for the lack of a vav, right? It's, it, it really does seem like the verse is, is pre-telling the story that Nadav and Avihu are a unit, pause, and Elazar and Itamari be a unit, right? Just, just because the vav is not there. So that's trope, a trope wise too, Rabbi. Trope wise? Yeah, well, it's a, yeah, there's et Nadav et Avihu, that's by itself. At Elazar, Tamar, that's a separate clause. Good, very good. Uh, Sue? And, and, uh, microphone? And we need a third microphone. And, and all those names are names we all, like we said earlier, what gets, how, how do names get picked up and carried forward? Well, we all know Nadavs and Abus and, and Elazars and Itamars, and that's, that whole family, they, they got some traction with their names. <laughs> Um, okay, yes, Toba. Uh, along the same uh, um, line that we've been commenting on. Move the mic closer to your mouth. I'm sorry. Along the same, li same line we've been commenting on, going back to the question of Achot Nakshon, I think what comes to my mind is that the people hearing this read aloud to them or, or experiencing these texts in some ways were not naive readers. They were already imbued with this tradition. And I just imagine them, if it's being read to them, hearing this and hearing them get to Ahot Nakshon and having this, oh, Nakshon, 
you know, and making like that connection deepens immediately the, the image that's been presented and the same way with the groupings we just discussed that their audience were already part of this culture and it just, they're sort of, they're primed to be enriched by the way this is grouped and what they choose to add. That's a fascinating comment, Tova. I'm struck by how impossible it is. We're not like disentangling the chicken and the egg there because the listeners in the first, second century CE who've gotten both Pshat and Drash are definitely having their ears perked by hearing Nachshon because of what they may have learned about the Midrash of Nachshon. But the listeners in Isaiah's time, yeah. right? Or, you know, in, you know, as the Torah is being codified in 9th, 8th, 7th centuries BCE, with Midrash not yet being written, unless you take the very wonderful from understanding of it is that God gave Midrash and Pshat at Torah, in which case, you know, they, they, they knew it unconsciously, right? That then Nachshon is just Nachshon, not Nachshon. But, but you know, there's also, um, we'll never fully know this. We'll never fully know when this text got completely concretized. We'll never fully know when the stories that became written down Midrashim were starting to filter into the consciousness of the Israelites. So when the, the, the Fermi tradition that says that at Sinai, God gave Torah Shebechtav and Torah Shebalpeh, on the some, like written Torah and oral Torah, right? so that, that God already gave the statements that Rabbi Yehuda was going to say in the Mishnah, on some level, that's utterly fanciful. On some level, it's the way, it's the, in, the rabbi's internal way of saying that what you see produced in Mishnah and Midrash did not get born in one moment, yesh ma'ayin, you know, something from nothing. It, it seeped out. It seeped out and it was already present in the ancient generations, right? It didn't just like, you know, appear in intellectual history. It filtered. It's like you know, water filtering down from you know into the reservoir, um, and there's actually something very evocative about that, right? That what we see is just the recording of it, but maybe a Jew in the Babylonian exile, you know, in 570, sitting on the waters of Babylon, was aware of the Nachshon story because it had already been 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 spoken orally. Just no one had written it down and attributed it to a rabbi. Okay, great. More. Mike, Tova, microphone, it's okay. The, 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 and setting aside authorship for a minute, the words that are chosen to be put down may themselves be conscious of that underlying oral tradition, if you will. Nice. And therefore they include Nakshon because in their head, I mean, I mean, you more or less said this, but that yes, it's, it's <clears throat> being written in the awareness of this underlying ocean of tradition. Terrific. You could add in one layer that, or consciously or unconsciously, one of the reasons why Nakshon ends up becoming a bigger character later on in the Midrashi tradition is because he's mentioned here, not everyone else's. So, so maybe it's a, it's a go towards saying, well, let, let's do something with this character. Good. Okay. Uh, you still have the mic. Let's read our first Rashi of the day. Um, focusing on the, oh, Stevie's hand is up. Sorry, Stevie, go ahead. Um, just to say that in the biblical times, uh, Nachshon was not a nobody without the Midrash, right? Like being Prince of Judah 
which becomes the most important tribe is like a big deal. Uh, right. Um, in, in, in the verses of Torah, he's one of 12 princes, right? Sure. Because uh, Judah's not yet what Judah's going to be. But yes, if you look at all of biblical history, the person who was the representative of the tribe of Judah who becomes dominant ends up becoming significant even before Midrash, correct? Hmm. Um, okay, let's read the Rashi on verse 23. Um, like almost all the time, Rashi is answering the question without giving the question, but we've already divined the question. The question is, as uh, Elon said from the very beginning, why are we care, caring about a sister? Okay? Everyone see where we are? Okay. So you're still up. Okay, Achot Nachshon. Mikan Lamanu Anuse Isha Tsarich no Isha Tsarich Livdok Bahia. Before we even read that, I'm sorry, I want to point out one thing as to why like why specifically Rashi is asking this question. So Rashi is not just concerned about why are we no no we caring about a sister. He's also concerned about um unnecessary redundant information and he's saying since in our verse it says that he married Elisheva who was the daughter of Aminadav and in Mukdam Mukharba Torah there's no forward and backward in the Torah if you look at um the book of Numbers chapter 2 look at on the screen everybody um um those who were um this is the description of the roving uh, camp through the desert in the beginning of Parshat Bamidbar, those who were east-south. Degel Machane Yehuda, it's the flag of the encampment of Judah, Litzibotam, according to their menis. We'll actually hit Litzibotam later on in our class, either today or next week. Benasi Livne Yehuda, as Stevie had said, and the prince of this tribe was Nachshon Ben Aminadav. So if we are going to know later that Nachshon is the son of Aminadav, then once our verse tells us that he's Nachshon bin Aminadav, we've, we've identified who this Nachshon is. We know, we know his family. So then it's even more extraneous than tell us his sister. If telling us who his sister was was the way you were telling us who he was, that's one thing. But we know who he is because we have other places in the Torah that tell us that this is Nachshon Goldstein, right? Nachshon bin Aminadav. So then why Achot, Achot, um, um, go ahead. <laughs> From this we learn, which is that alone seems a little odd. I mean, we're always, from every Rashi, he doesn't say Mikan Lamanu on everything. He's saying from that, from the fact that that Nachshon, that Nach, um, I'm getting confused, but that, uh, that, <laughs> that um, Nachshon's relationship to Elisheva is mentioned, we learn the following thing. Meaning right. I draw, I draw, and the, and the Talmud draws from, from this. this thing, the mm -hmm. following life lesson. What's okay. the life lesson? When you marry a woman, you need to check his brothers. Yeah. <laughs> this is a pretty, right. so, pretty straightforward so, right. Rashi thing. says, I, I guess this is telling us something, right? From, from the fact that the Torah once mentions, you know, who someone's brother was, this is a way of saying that don't marry a woman unless you know who his brothers are. Now, let me ask you that question, right? And, and try to be as generous as possible. Why? Like, like 
this, this is what the rabbis are hanging that little life lesson on. Why might that be significant to explore, however partially or fully sexist it is? Sue? Well, we, we have the story of, of Shimon and Reuven and Shechem. Um, Shimon and Levi. Shimon and Levi. Yeah. And Levi? Yeah. Shimon and Levi and Shechem. And I mean, those were some... <laughs> Those were some brothers that wreaked havoc on the woman that he married. And so, you know, maybe it's like, uh, check the brothers. Right, as if it's a warning to Shechem, right? An ex post facto warning to Shechem. Anyone else? Larry? Well, this is just the yichus of the, of, of, of Elisheva. Of El but I have a question that, that will help me to, to give a different answer. Who was Amina Dov? Do we know who Aminadav was? The father of Nachshon. <laughs> My point is, we have no reason to, to talk about Nachshon because he's the son of nobody, at least nobody in this lineage. Right. This gives us an opportunity to include Nachshon. And he's important, not because of the Midrash, because we just read. Yeah. He's a prince. Yeah. So he's going to come up later on. So if you're, at least like me, thinking about the scribes sitting around writing these stories and figuring out, and say, what about Nachshon? Get him in there. Get him in there. How do we get him in there? Ah, oh, he was the brother of Elisheva, and we're going to get her in there right. because she married Aaron. Right. And, and there's a, a, a tribal intermarriage here, right? Because the Levites are, are marrying with, with the Judahites, right? Um, let, let's linger more on just this, this one line, then I'm going to show you the Talmudic source from which Rashi takes it. So we're, we're, we're learning. Like, imagine this is Rashi as sermonizer. Right, Shabbat, good Shabbos, everyone. So nice to see you. Hope every you know, Mazel Tov to the to the family. What I want to teach you this morning is when you're searching for a wife, you know, looks matter, and, and there's got to be natural attraction to make sure she has good midot. But don't you propose unless you know about her brothers. It's very significant that I teach you this today. Like, what's there? What 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 is what is worthy there? There, there are clearly things that are like I would obviously never say that. Right, but is there a version of that that we could say to our community, to our children, Diane? So I'm going to say two things. One is when you marry, you marry a family. Mm -hmm. You don't marry an individual. You marry into a family, um, and the ethos of a family really matters. And the other thing, so we are watching a show very unlike all the TV shows we watch. It's called Indian Matchmaker. And it's about this matchmaker who is Indian, but makes matches for Indians who live all over the world. Indian In, country? Yeah. And the very first meeting is always the man, she meets the, the woman's family, the entire family. They sit around and they have this conversation about who the woman wants to marry and also who her family wants her to marry. Hmm. And this kind of strikes that chord. Yeah, good. I see other hands, so we'll go around. Uh, well, Joel said, if you can all read on the screen, that since baldness goes through the mother, you want to know whether your kids will be bald, right? <laughs> That's both wonderful and funny, and believe it or not, not that far away from the Talmud's original version of this idea that Rashi extracted from. Sue, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that it's it's... I think if we're going to sermonize about it, it's a little bit of a reverse demand on the brothers 
that if 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 it says in the Torah that if a man is going to marry a woman, go check his brothers. That I I, w- I would wonder if that encourages the brothers to be upstanding citizens well, and holds people in kind of a better communal array. Hmm. Particularly if you link that with the first thing you said, it, you you. I don't know if this is what's intended, but it could be used as a chastisement of Shimon and Levi. Like you, you screwed up Dina's chances a bit. Yeah, great. Uh, Barry, would you hand up? Anyone? Uh, Rosemary, and then Renee. I see your hand up, so we'll get to you in a second. Well, for us, it is to go see the parents, the mother and father. I mean, the girl is going always to resemble to her mother, and the son to his father. And that's normal because it comes from education. What you have seen, you're going to repeat. Uh, uh, I, I have always said that also to my children. Just look the mother and get the daughter. <laughs> so in in some more traditional societies, this is taken rather seriously. There is a certain sense, like in pre-enlightenment thinking, there was a lot that was considered predetermined, right? And it was not this idea that you're an entirely new human being and you and you and you make all your choices on your own that there is some they weren't understanding it genetically there is some um, um, predisposition that you can't escape from excuse me and it's as if the Torah or the Talmud is saying here you want to get a sense of who your children are going to be yeah marry the woman but get to know that woman's brothers because your sons might be like that person uh, Renee Rick and then uh, Tova. Maybe part of what looking at the sun is about is also seeing a behavior, uh, getting behavioral information to see what kind of husbands they are and how they treat their lives. So kind of like helping to define what the role of husband and wives are within the family unit. Right, and it does make some sense. And 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 the people we choose to spend our life with on some level are their own person, but they. They have been formed by a family dynamic that is, I, I remember the moment when it just occurred to me, and it seems so obvious now that however alike two people can be, however aligned they are in values, however much they like the same TV, <laughs> TV shows, right? Every two human beings are radically different from one another. The notion that marriage ever works is, is actually almost incomprehensible considering how different people can be. And particularly how much little information we usually have about someone by the, t- the time that we make that choice, right? It seems like a lot of information. It's really a leap of faith. So one way the Talmud is saying it is, right, get to know more than just her, right? Get to know where she comes from. And the Talmud will tell us in a second why the siblings are significant. Uh, Ilan and then Rick. Yeah, I could, uh, you oh, said- No, no, sorry, sorry, Tova. Well, we'll get, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, you go said ahead. before that you couldn't envision yourself saying this, but I could, and I don't think it's ne- necessarily a negative, meaning that no different than when I make an investment, I want to do complete due diligence mm. into what I'm investing in. It doesn't mean that if I find something negative, I won't invest, but I think it would be remiss if somebody were to marry somebody and not know about their family. They may discover that their brother is Sam Bankman Freed. That's fine. They still might marry them and that might be fine, yeah. but it would be it would be irresponsible not to do complete due diligence. Right. That, that's lovely, Elon. And and I think anyone who has a child who, uh, you know, is or has been through the process of being mated off. Right. You are you are interested in who the mate is, but like there is something that you feel positive or not positive when you learn about 
that, that child's family. They're their own person, but they've been produced by something. Uh, Tova, Rick, Larry. Uh, just a slightly different take on, on some of the things that have been said. Uh, I, I, I don't know with complete clarity what the sort of family social structure would have been at that time, but certainly in, in some societies today, women would really only have had intimate relations, not physically, but no, intimate yeah, yeah. emotional relations with the men of their own family. Uh, and therefore to observe what this brother is like, her peer in terms of age, this is the kind, this is who she's related to intimately through all of her life. And that could be highly informative about how you are going to be together. Wonderful. Thank you for that. Uh, Rick. Um, hi, I'm also thinking about the property that um, Elisheva would inherit from Aharon. Um, uh, uh, what, how many brothers she would have and if she would get anything. It's kind of like the daughters of Tzolochah. There were no brothers, so they had to make a law that it would go to the daughters. But um, um, finding that out before you go in, you know, what's the inheritance kind of situation? Besides their moral behaviors, it's it, if she's going to get anything physical um, like that, inheriting. Good. Okay. Larry? I'm, first of all, <clears throat> amazed at how deep this discussion has gone and how far it's gone. I just want to comment on something that the rabbi said that's not really related then to this discussion, which is how miraculous it is that a couple manages to, I forget your exact words, but to stay together. Diane and I just went on the most wonderful experience of our lives, the jazz cruise for a week. I thought this was the most wonderful experience of our lives. <laughs> Goodness. Second, Sorry. Second and the demographic on the ship, 1,900 jazz fans, and the vast, 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 well, we're all older, in our 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And the, and the demographic is, it was couples. 95% of the people there were couples. And the vast, vast majority of those couples had been married a long time. We went there celebrating our 50th anniversary and discovered, and disco no, discovered that was nothing. Because mm. <laughs> there were, we met so many people who were discovering, their, having their, their more than 50th, 60th, whatever. And it seems to me that's the secret. That's how it is. It has nothing to do with yichas. It has to do with people finding a common interest yeah. and pursuing that common interest, whatever it would be. Or maybe it's just the jazz. <laughs> maybe it's just the jazz. Could be. Um, when when they launch a uh, nigun cruise, let me know, and I will I will I will explore. I, I don't know if I would want to do a jazz cruise, but a, a nigun cruise I would do. Um, let I want to show you the piece of Talmud where this comes from for two reasons. One, because I want you to see the source, and because the, today's Rashi that, uh, Tova, that Sue read and the ones we'll get to next week are all actually collected from the same one page of Talmud. And sometimes it's interesting just to see that process. So let me share a screen. Okay, so we are in Masechet Bava Batra, the third of the um, three Bavas. A Bava is a gate. So the, um, in, in Seder, the order of Mishnah called Sanhedrin, um, uh, Nazikin. Uh, the first, um, the, 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 there are three Masechta, uh, three tractates, Baba Kama, the first gate, Baba Metzia, the middle gate, Baba Bacha, the last gate. And as you know, the Talmud goes all over the place. So even though those tractates are dealing with 
um, damages and tort law and things like that. There's also a lot of Torah commentary on it. So um, I'm going to show you Amar Rava. Rava said, Hanoseisha, if you marry a woman, that word nose is the word from which we get nisuin, which is the second part of the wedding ceremony, the Sheva Brachot, to take a wife. Sarich becha, skadu, check her brothers. Shinamar, as it says, proof text. Remember Rashad Mikan Lamanu? From this we learned he knows this Talmud. The Talmud learns this from here. That Aaron took Elisheva, the daughter of Achot Nachshon. Mimashma Shinamar Bat Aminadav, from the fact that we already know that she was the daughter of Aminadav, Aini Yodea Shachot Nachshon, don't I already know that she was the um, sister of Nachshon? Because we have uh, the verse later on. Ma Talmud Lomar, what do therefore I learn from this? Achot Nachshon. What do I learn from the fact that she's mentioned as the sister of Nachshon? From this, I have to learn that um, you have to check the brothers. Tana, and now Tana is a technical term in uh, the Talmud. It's the introduction of a short Mishnaic, Mishnaic era teaching. So whenever, after the word Tana, I learned this, learned this from my professor, Rabbi David Galinkin, almost every place in the Talmud where the word Tana appears, what comes next is at most a seven word aphorism from the Tanitic era. It's a, it's a different introduction than a longer text. Rov banim domin ha'em. That in the Mishnaic era, it was believed to be that most children are similar to their maternal uncles. They thought that, right? So we might think it differently, but all of what you might think about that is partially right. They had the impression that if you want to know how your sons are going to be, look at not your not not at you, right, and not at your grandfather, but at your wife's brothers. I don't know if anyone has uncles like that in their you know in their genealogy. If you feel like you're all like them, right, we can obviously disprove this with small sample size. But that's that's how the, the Rashi doesn't include that part. Rashi says you have to check check the. Uh, the siblings, but doesn't explain why. The Talmud said, because that's how you're going to know how your sons are going to turn out. So it's not just figuring out whether or not you're a good match, right? It's not just figuring out, does she come from a good family? It's predictive from their perspective as to who your sons are going to be. And that's why we learn this. And, it's, and we learn this as an example for uh, that's supposed to teach us how we're supposed to act in all such situations. Tova, and with this, we'll probably end. Um, no, I find that's fascinating. Uh, there's um, Southeast Island societies where you obviously have women marrying out of their family, but within those societies, a man will see as his closest relation, not his own son by his wife, but rather his sister's son. Mm. That's really the, that, the through mm. line that they see. And it's the same it's the kind same of idea. thought. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, right. So th this little verse, you know, opened up a lot, a lot of doors. Uh, we're still in the Rashi's on verse. No, we finished the Rashi verse 23, but two verses later, we'll get to a series of Rashi's, which are also taken from the same page of Talmud and Baba Batra. Uh, have a good week, everybody, and uh, be well, be healthy. Come back in person, please. Bye.
You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.